Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Millennial in the Middle. I'm excited to share this interview with you today and introduce you to Alan Michael Boston. This is a first on the podcast. This is the first time that we've had someone come on the podcast that has actually reached out to me. Uh, so far, all the guests I've reached out to because of their experience or perspective or whatever it might be and have asked them to come on. And a few episodes in, uh, Alan Michael reached out to me and he said, Connor, I love what you're doing here with this podcast. I feel myself as a millennial in the middle and I'd love to chat about that. Now, what's cool is Alan Michael's upbringing is very, very different than mine. His life experiences are very, very different than mine, even though we're only a year or two apart in age. He's 30 years old, but Alan Michael grew up in Mobile, Alabama. Alan Michael is black, and he finds himself working through you know, the madness that we're going through in politics right now and really finding a hard time, uh, you're having a hard time finding where he fits in. Uh, in this episode, we talk about what growing up in the South was like. He's lived in the South. He's lived in Southern California, New Jersey, Chicago. Uh, he's lived all over the place. And it's interesting to see his experiences and what he shares here. And I think overall, what you're going to find, Alan Michael is one of the most positive people I've ever met. He's one of those charismatic people that you just feel better after being around. And I think how he shares his thoughts on current events and what our nation is facing right now, it is a message of hope. And while we aren't perfect, that, hey, things aren't as bad as they may look or seem, and there's a way forward here. Enjoy the interview, Alan Michael Boston. He's calling in from Chicago, where he lives now. And of course, I'm doing this here from the podcast studio. Enjoy. Alan Michael, how are you, my friend? Thanks for coming on tonight. For sure. I appreciate you having me on, buddy. Excited about our conversation tonight. You know, it's pretty cool because I've reached out to a lot of guests now and I've had a lot of people that I've wanted to have on the show and we hadn't talked in years. And it was yeah. so cool for me to get the text from you like, hey, Connor, I listened to a couple episodes of the podcast. This resonates with me. I want to come on the show. I want to talk about race relations. I want to talk politics. And so you're the first guest that kind of reached out to me and said, I want to share. I want to have this conversation. And honestly, in the couple talks we've had from that time, I've been so impressed with your perspective and the way you look at things. And man, I think people are really going to benefit from what we have to talk about today. So tell me this, Alan Michael, like what was it about this concept of millennial in the middle or listening to the podcast that clicked with you? Uh, in all reality, it was, it was the catchiness of it. <laughs> so I'm all about a catchy phrase. I love phrases and like just the millennial in the middle aspect of it. And I feel like that's exactly where I'm at. Like I don't lean either way. I understand both sides. And so I do feel like I'm stuck in the middle. And I got a lot of friends that feel the same way, like a, a group message that I'm in with a bunch of buddies. Like we, we all are in the middle on most topics. Like when something will happen, we'll just shoot texts with thoughts that we have. And we kind of all in the middle of a lot of things. And um, so I was like, that is catchy, but it's important because I think there are a lot of people out there that really do find themselves in the middle. And I think that's because a lot of the times we haven't, really been we haven't needed to be political growing up I feel like as millennials like it hasn't been 
too important. And now like with the advent of social media and, and things being amplified, it's like, okay, well, we probably should be more involved, but how? <laughs> and yeah. so like we find ourselves in the middle and with the catchy phrase, millennial in the middle, it's like, <laughs> I, I, I want to talk about that. I like that. Let's see what yeah. we get going. Well, and I think what you said is spot on where I think so often politics, it's hard to feel that relating to us, right? But I think with so many things that are going on in our current political climate, like you can't avoid that these matters affect you personally, uh, or at least affect friends or family members. And it, I think it's kind of forced a lot of people, like you said, that haven't been involved before. Like, I don't care about talking about the national debt, or I don't care about yeah. talking about immigration yeah. reform that doesn't affect me. But now it's this conversation of, patriotism or in America, uh, race relations, how we engage with each other, and all of a sudden, really fast, it gets real. And I look at my relationship with you, and you know, I think typically we wouldn't sit around and talk about race, right? It's something yeah, that we aren't yeah, comfortable exactly. with. It's not something we bring up, but all of a sudden, we're being, I don't know if forced is the right word, but all of a sudden, we're having these conversations now. And we've got to be willing to open our minds, to have direct conversations, and ultimately just try to all become a little better people. Yeah, I think, I think this, uh, what you're doing, it, it gives people opportunity to listen. And um, you touched on that with a, a couple of different episodes, but it's so important to just listen to others' perspectives. Not saying that they have to change your mind, but I think one thing that we lack when it comes to politics and choosing a side is empathy. And you can't have empathy without listening, like the ability to relate or feel where they come from and their perspective. Like we don't have a lot of empathy in politics, which I think separates us a lot when it comes to being in the middle. Absolutely. I, man, I think that's so well put. Like empathy comes from understanding someone else's perspective, right? And that's why I'm so excited to have you on. And I mean, we can jump into this perspective conversation, right? Because let's face it, like my upbringing and background couldn't be more different than your yeah. upbringing and background, right? Like <laughs> white sure. guy raised in Draper, Utah, black guy raised in Mobile, Alabama, right? Yeah, for sure. And that like, we are a product of the way we were raised, the way we were absolutely. taught. That's uh, not absolutely. how we think. So tell me, Alan Michael, like how did your, just tell me about your upbringing. How's that made Dude, you who yeah. you are today? Uh, <laughs> it's kind of, it's, it's, I've had such a unique experience from most people in the South seeing that. So like just, I've lived in California where we met, Alabama mm -hmm. where I grew up, uh, South Carolina, um, Connecticut, Massachusetts, New Jersey, um, Utah, and now I'm in Illinois. And so I've lived in a lot of different places. And so I feel like that's shaped my perspective. Um, and I haven't really, like, I'm not a real political person. It's not something that, that drives me. I think more important than my upbringing is just my political history, I think. Because, like, I, I haven't really focused or been into politics as much. But lately, I've been more in tune to pay attention and to exercise the right that I've been given, which is to vote. Um, so like in, in 08, I was 18. I remember like it was yesterday. <laughs> I, I was, uh, Obama was running for president, didn't watch anything, didn't pay attention <laughs> to anything. 
but I'm 18. I'm in high school, first black president. Like I remember when he won the nomination, my grandparents and parents crying, like older people crying because they never thought they would see a black president. So I'm stoked. Like I voted for a black president. Like, absolutely. (laughs) And the next four years didn't pay attention to it. And then it's kind of crazy because in 2012, um, I, I was like becoming more active in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Like I was preparing to go on a mission, paying more attention to spiritual items. And then Mitt Romney runs for president. So I'm like, okay, <laughs> sweet. Uh, you know, I voted for Obama back then. I'm just going to vote for Mitt, not really paying too much attention to it. But I'm like, he's a member of my church. I think he's a good guy. Opened me up to more conservative, dare I say, Republican views, essentially. Sure. And so, like, in 2016, when you got Trump and Hillary, I'm like, eh. <laughs> like, I don't have no dog in this fight. I, honestly, I was like, I, I get what Trump's doing. And, like, I was like, oh, yeah, get Trump in there, dude. Shake it up. He's not a politician. Like, businessman, that's what we need. That's what the, the shtick was. Hillary's, like, career politicians didn't really care much about the Clinton. So I'm like, I don't have a dog in a fight. I'm not going to pay attention. Fast forward four years later. Um, the the weight of like, hey, you need to be a part of these decisions in, in the nation. You need to be exercising yeah. that right to vote and not just exercising the right to vote, but voting for a candidate and having the convictions of why I voted for it. And so I've been paying attention more like the last year, two years, which makes things really tough with Facebook because like I got a lot of friends who are just far left, a lot of friends who are far right. And I'm like, okay, well, where can I get factual information? Where can I go to get the opinions out of it and get to information to where I can make a decision based on how I feel for the candidate that I want to support? So I know that's not like a really a lot of background of my upbringing, which we can get into a little Uh, bit later. Yeah, I think before we get there, I mean, that makes a lot of sense, right? Because what you just explained in 08 and 12, you had a personal connection that you felt that you identified with the presidential candidates. So you voted for them because of that. And then in 16, you didn't feel a connection. You didn't feel like you identified with either of them. So what did you do? You stayed home, right? And I think what a lot of people are in the boat of now is exactly what you explained. Of You don't necessarily feel like you identify with Donald Trump or Joe Biden, right? Like neither of those, I like what you said, you don't have a dog in the fight, but you realize that it's not an option to just stay uninformed and uninvolved, right? Like the stakes Absolutely. do feel yeah. higher. Yeah. And, and so I think that middle mentality then all of a sudden puts a little pressure on you. Like, well, I got to look into this. I got to check some things out. And uh, I think that's where a lot of people listening to this podcast are. Um, so tell me about that upbringing. Tell me about what was it like growing up? I mean, you say Mobile, Alabama, and hopefully this doesn't sound offensive, but like (laughs) if you put like 10 cities on a list and said, pick the city that maybe feels like the most still in segregation area, uh, era Jim Crow, like Mobile, Alabama would be the first one I'd circle, (laughs) right? That's where you grew up. Tell me about it. So my experience is a little jaded and and I'll explain why. But so like uh, when we were, when I was young, we lived in Alabama village. Anybody from Mobile know what the village is. It's like, it's a pretty tough neighborhood. But we were there, I think I say we moved around when I was three, four, we moved to rural Alabama. 
and that's why that's why I grew up. So from four to twelve, eleven, I was in the country, and like it was pretty chill. We we played outside, jumped on the trampoline, got wet with water hose. Like grew up very poor, but as kids, you don't pay much attention to it as long as you got a roof over your head and something to eat and you can play. Like it's not that not that poignant to you that you're growing up for. So we, we ended up moving. uh, It's it's kind of, it's crazy. Like we were actually homeless for a little bit and then we ended up moving back to Pritchard and our Pritchard is just an area mobile. So we stayed there for two years and it was like, it wasn't as tough as the village, but it was still a pretty tough area. And like, it's wild because we went from, yeah, go play outside, go run around, no monitoring to, no, you stand in the house, <laughs> you're not going outside, it's just school and back home. And I'm like, I didn't really understand why going into yeah. my teenage years. And dude, it's crazy. Like, I remember house getting shot up, like mom finding bullets in the house, dad's car getting stolen, like just craziness. It, it, was, it was a wild two years in middle school, which was pretty crazy. And then um, we moved back to like, I would say suburbia, not suburbia, kind of like poor middle-class neighborhood, uh, but in a, in a nice community. And I, I say my, my, my upbringing towards really political stuff and, and, and racial, um, racial division is kind of jaded because growing up as an athlete, and if you're good at sports, a lot of, racial tension is blinded from you. Like I, I went to a predominant, like my high school was probably 65 white, 40, 35 black, maybe a little bit higher on the white, 70, 30. Yeah. Um, so majority white school, but I, I never, racial relations never resonated with me growing up. I had a lot of black friends, a lot of white friends, friends from the hood, friends from the suburbs, like, it never, and I think it's because of sports, yeah. like where I was jaded to it a little bit. Um, because if, if I talked to my little brother, it was the complete opposite. And we went to the same high school. He didn't play sports. I did. Um, so I don't know. How like, is it opposite for him? Because he, because I don't, like I say, I think sports, <laughs> believe it or not. And well, you can look at the history of how sports in America and racial division has worked when you're an athlete and you're a talented athlete, you're not necessarily looked at as a black person. You're looked at as an athlete who plays sports for that team and you're good and you help that team win. But when you don't have those accolades, and I'll give you an example, when you don't have those accolades, it's like, nope, you're back to being a black person. And now you have these connotations like as a, 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 a larger black person, because my brother's 6'2", 220. Like he's a big guy. So a lot of that aggressive and he's just, he's the nicest, softest guy that you can meet, but a lot of him can be portrayed as aggressive. Like he he's had experiences with high school teachers and middle school teachers where it was racial towards him. And, and I can't say it was, or it wasn't because I, I wasn't in his shoes, but him being my little brother and knowing who he are, not, not, not knowing who he is, not having like a, uh, uh, racial insensitivity bone in his body, I lean towards believing him and what happened. And so I say that because like, 
an example that I had. So when I was playing football in high school and, and in college, like got pulled over. It, it's, it's crazy. Pulled over by cops, like chill. Don't even give me a ticket. Keep going. Like mm-hmm. buddy, buddy with the police, stuff like that. Um, so when I, I, I went and served a mission for the church, Jesus Christ, Latter Saints. Um, so after my mission, I came home and I started working in South Carolina and I had the craziest experience. I was knocking on doors like I normally do. And, and I was standing on the porch talking to a couple, a white couple, um, and two cops just come flying by. And I didn't pay attention to it. I'm like, that was kind of weird. And then they pull up to us. They hop out the car. They come get me. Like They like, let me see your license. Da, da, da. And you can feel the tension. First time I had ever experienced anything like this. And I'm like, what did I do? Like, what's going on? What, why do you want to see my license? You're what out here working, selling door to door. Yeah, I'm out. Yeah. And then, um, and so the, the lady started recording it for me. And looking back on, I'm like, thank you for recording. Like the lady inside started recording. The husband was outside. He's like, Hey, what's, what's going on? Like they were vouching for me. And the cops was like, yeah, we got a call that someone was trying to break in in the neighborhood and we need to come out here. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? Yeah. Didn't make much of it, but it for me, it painted a picture of, okay, you're not a football athlete anymore. You need to be more cautious in your surroundings and stuff like that. Yeah. But yeah, so that's why uh, I say that. that. That's interesting. So you you didn't feel like growing up that you were afraid of the police? No, uh, not at all. I, I had I had many encounters with the police, but it was in the area where I played football. Huh. And so, like, I knew the the chief sheriff who would just, like, you get a speeding ticket, bring it to me, I'll get to take care of it. Or some, some happened, tell yeah. them to call me. And it's like, it, it was chill. I, like, never anything. <laughs> my my One of my best friends is actually a, a police for the same little area now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, one of my good buddies. But, no, I, like, yeah. never, no. Well, and here's, that's a really interesting point you bring up, right? Because some of the leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement right now are the voices that have the most credibility and are being listened to the most are athletes, right? Starting with Colin Kaepernick to now LeBron James and what we see in the NBA, you know, here from Utah, it's Donovan Mitchell leading the charge. And there's this comment made, right? That's like, just play basketball. Just do it. Just do what you're meant to do. You're paid to play basketball. Just play, shut your mouth and do it. Right. And I think that doesn't sit well with me because as a black man in American society, like that is the easiest or at least, you know, the path of least resistance to have a voice in our country. And so how do you feel about athletes now being politically active and speaking up? Um, I think is I think it's great, and I also think it it'll it'll move the needle a lot quicker if they weren't. Um, I think with time things will continue to get better. I look at things. Did you say it moved the needle if they weren't? It it, it moves the needle quicker because they are, but the needle still would be moved if they didn't. I think okay. athletes are in a unique perspective with the because money talks. Yeah, and so they have a very unique perspective in regards to. Um, what they're able to accomplish. And I think it's great. Like, I don't see, especially considering what the counter to an athlete's protest is. 
which is we've seen to be looting, rioting, civil yeah. unrest. I'd rather see it coming from athletes that can move the needle with people who can actually put money towards change than yeah. rioting and looting where the same things are happening. It's just people are losing money, but the money is driving the change. Sure. Um, and so I think it's great that athletes are exercising that voice and it's not anything new. Social media has just amplified it. If you go back to yeah. Muhammad Ali, Bill Russell, um, I can't think of the Cleveland Browns running back, uh, Joe Brown, like, it's not anything new. Social media, yeah. e everything is just now amplified to where everyone is now seeing it and the media can't suppress any of it. Yeah. Well, and I think, I think that argument with that often too, you talk about money talks, which is true, but you have, you know, those in the white community that are like, Hey, LeBron James can't lecture us about oppression, right? Like yeah, no yeah, one's yeah. feeling bad about LeBron James's life. Right. But yeah. at the end of the day, people listen to LeBron James and he still, you know, if he feels strongly about being that voice for those that can't be heard and to move it quicker. I know you're a LeBron James fan. I bring that example, uh, yeah, right? But like, guy. has this made you like him more? Uh, it's kind of twofold. So this is where I find myself in the middle with some things that LeBron and, and this is the, I'm grateful that he does it. But some things I think is just way too far. Like that was a little exaggerant that you said that, but I get why you're being that exaggerant. But I find myself more of like, eh, I don't really, like I don't 100% agree with everything LeBron does or any athlete. Hmm. But I think the intentions behind why they're doing it are a little bit more sincere. Uh, I think LeBron's done things that, just some tweets, comments, things like that are like a little for a little quirky for me, a little out there. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do like LeBron. That's my guy. I think um, one of the, to, to touch on the, the point that you made in regards to like some people saying, well, you can't lecture us about this because of your standing or whatever the case may be. I think as black people, we have to be aware that we can become desensitized to the overall picture of blacks in America. Because there are, like, I, I count myself fortunate to be in a position to where I can provide for myself. Um, and I attribute that to my faith, uh, my, my mom and dad being committed to me, even though they weren't able to provide a lot financially for me. They were committed to our family, things like that. Um, but we can become desensitized to the reality of what a lot of people in America, particularly blacks, minorities, poor people experience. Because, dude, it's tough. It, like, you go to a hood, it is tough. Like you ride through and it's like, I, I literally just came from uh, California, LA. I was out there mm -hmm. for a month and I just, it, it hurts to see the homelessness and the people that don't have that hope or, or whatever the case may be. And the majority of the people that I saw were black. And like that puts in perspective, like even though I'm not there, I'm at a better place, I can't allow like now that I have a, a greater voice, I need to make it known a little bit more. And I feel like that's what athletes do. Now that they have that voice, they have to make it known yeah. more and, and even more in a, like a, like a LeBron esque over the top example of what's going on in America. Yeah. You know, you bring up your parents and something we've talked about that I think is really interesting is reminding us all that, you know, segregation, the Jim Crow, obviously racist laws, uh, 
we're not that far removed, right? I think it's easy to claim that that's ancient history, right? But your, like, your family experienced that. How did that shape, like, hearing about those stories and what, what, they, what they went through into your perspective today? Yeah, dude, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's real tough. And consider, like, my dad and, man, that is, hearing some of the experiences that he's had, it's tough, like, is tough. Um, it, yeah, a lot of people think that it's a different lifetime ago, but it wasn't. And like, it, what frustrates me about when we talk about the history of America is people act like we change overnight. Yeah, civil rights happened in the 60s, but that that's not going to change people that quick. And so like, yeah, you go into the 70s, but people really aren't changed. 80s 90s yeah change has occurred but we're talking about millions of people hearts don't change like that and so yeah it's it's pretty wild i don't know if i answered that question but it's pretty pretty wild yeah i mean did your parents tell you story did they live in the south as well yeah so my dad uh they my they both grew up rural so my parents are a little bit different in this regard my mom's father was military okay and so she grew up um they had means like my grand, my granddad made sure she was taken care of. And, um, but she grew up understanding like there was a difference between white and blacks. Like it's, it's not mm-hmm. hard to not see it's there. And my dad, he, it was different. So my, my, my granddad served in I think two or three wars, um, retired military VA took care of him and stuff like that. So he was pretty well off. And then my dad's parents, um, my grandmother was an engineer, so he grew up pretty wealthy, black standards, which made it mm-hmm. even tougher on him because he had a lot of the things that white people had back then, and he was black. And so um, I say that, that it was a little bit different for them in regards to their situations. But yeah, my dad would just tell me stories of him in high school and like stuff like that. It would just be like, I don't know. I don't know how I would have dealt with that. If I yeah. had been brought up in those shoes, and my grandmother, it's 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 hard for her even to this day. Like her relationship with white people is different, and when I talk to her, I hear it. She's not racist, but well, she's she she's very slow to trust a white person, understandably so because of what she's experiencing and what her. You got to think, my grandmother's sixty, it's in her going in her seventies. And so her mom was 90, would have been 95, 100. And so her mom grew up, she grew up with her mom and her mom lived through the early 1900s. Yeah. And, you know, like, it's not that far removed from, and generationally in a lot of black people's home, because a lot of people, a lot of black people my age still have their grandparents. My grandmother, I, I got one grandma left, my, my, father's mom died in a car accident my father's dad died alcoholism so he died pretty young my mom's dad passed away a couple years ago but my grandmother's still alive so in a lot of black people black family homes like someone who have lived through a pretty tough is still there and, and they've influenced these black people a lot and i think that's where the driving force in regards to 
the perspective of blacks and racial views are yeah. coming from because a lot of us are taught from our grandparents and parents. Sure. I think it's interesting because you say that and like, I think as, as a white guy and a lot of like white society, you think of your grandparents and you hear things that our grandparents say like, grandpa, you can't say that anymore, right? Like that's not okay. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think like what you just described there is the flip side of that, right? Like yeah. now as a white millennial, you hear your white baby boomer grandma or grandpa say something and you're like, oh, like, no, that's not okay. But it just shows that difference in time. And, and hopefully, you know, one thing I really, really respect about you is you are just the, one of the most positive people I've ever met, right? Like happy, positive. And I think so much of that is a choice, right? Of absolutely, yeah. you can find reasons to be down. You could find reasons to be angry. And so how have you like specifically with what's happening right now with the Black Lives Matter movement, the death of George Floyd, like this is a really, really hard time for black America. How has mm -hmm. this affected you? So here's the thing. I don't think it is as hard a time for black America as the media portrays. And my perspective, I think black America is doing a lot, way, 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 way better than we ever have. Now there is still things that need to happen to continue that change and growth. I think Black America started off behind, right? We can look at history and see that. But things that have helped sports drastically have changed a lot. Um, education, Blacks are more financially educated. Like, I'm way more financially educated than my parents were, light years ahead of what my grandmother were. So that means my kids will be light years ahead of where we were two generations ago. And I look at Black, now, although... Blacks across America have not reaped those benefits of having smart posterity yet. I think it's happening. Like, I think it's getting there um, just with the amount of black businesses that are growing, um, the amount of people that I know that are in school that are black, HBCUs, people actually graduating, taking advantage of, like, just from culture, rap, whatever, et cetera, et cetera, sports, being able to get that financial wealth and being smart with it. Um, so I think we are doing a lot better now than we were because of educational opportunities. Like my parents, and I know a lot of like a lot of people that I talk with, a lot of people that I associate with, they know I need to do better and I'm going to teach my kid to do better. And so it's, it's getting better. Um, so I don't think it's as bad as it's portrayed. Now, just because it's not as bad as it was, because it was really bad, doesn't mean we need to stop moving forward in regards to becoming better as a society and, and as a people too. Yeah. I love that. I mean, I think that's a, it, it's a hard perspective to be totally upfront with you. Right. Is like, that's how, that's how I feel, you know, from studying history, knowing that like we've made progress, but oh, I can't yeah. say that as a, as a white guy, right? Like I haven't experienced that. I haven't felt that. And it is refreshing to hear that positive side, but that doesn't mean, okay, we keep, we keep moving. Right. Like, okay, your generation from your parents to you has moved this far. How much further can we move as a society to your kids, right? You're 30 years old, you'll be having kids soon in that next step. And, you know, I think one of the things you talk about the media, the media really seeks to divide us. Mm -hmm. The media really loves to create this us-them mentality, whether it be, you know, political leanings or, you know, specifically in this debate, 
we feel like we're having to make a choice between cops or black lives matter, right? Like, do you support the cops or do you support them? And the same arguments made by both sides. Well, they're not all bad people. They're not all good people, right? Like, how do you feel in 2020, we can try to build that bridge more and be less divided? Um, I don't, like, again, I think is way better than the media portrays. Like, yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm optimistic to a fault, though. And so, like, I say that, but I don't know. <laughs> sure. Like, that's just one of those things where it's like, it, 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 it's going to take, I think we're too focused on, we're so narrow-minded as a people to where we can't hold two things true at once. Like, hmm. it got to be one or the other. And so it's hard to say how I feel about it. Because it's just like, it's, it's such a, a deep, broad concept to me. Like, it, I don't think there's no, yeah, Colin. I mean, Connor, this is, this is what I can do. This is it. Sure. You know, so. Yeah, I think that, I think that's key. To, we assume simplicity, right? Yeah. But exactly. things are more complex than they look. It's not a matter of, are you for, you know, something even as simple as defund the police. That doesn't mean that we're going to get rid of the police organization, yeah. right? Yeah. But it's a, maybe it's allocation of funds. Maybe the answer is giving more funding to the police so they can have more training and how to take confrontation and have uh, psychiatric yeah. abilities to be able to make sure that the people that are in blue out there serving are we've given them the best chance for success as possible, which in turn is going to give you the greatest chance of success. Dude, optimism is simple. It's easy to be optimistic. I feel like, like, and my little brother always tell me, dude, how are you so simple? And I'm like, I'm just optimistic. Being optimistic is simple. Now solutions are complicated. When you're talking about solutions to problems, that that's where the complications come in. But for me, it's easy to be optimistic and hopeful. Like, yeah, things will get better. Things will continue to be good. Very vague, but to me, it's simple and easy. No, and, and I think there is one thing about you that uh, that maybe you're in the minority on this, right? Of you were very blessed to be raised in a two-parent home. Oh, that, oh dude, yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. and I think we, we look at especially the black population that most don't have that ability. Now, even though your upbringing wasn't perfect, you had a time you said you were homeless, right? But you had that strength of a two-parent home and family. Like, what does family mean to you and how does that tie into this conversation? Um, dude, if, it's, it's kind of crazy. If you look back in the, the, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 30s, segregation was a problem but what it did is it allowed black families to rely on each other like the family unit was more intact in the 40s 50s and 60s i feel yeah after segregation when it opens up 70s 80s and 90s the family really starts to take a hit in in the in the black community from drugs the the way sentencing have been with like crimes um is it's a generational thing. And so I think that families have been hit really hard, especially in the black community on top of starting from a disadvantage point on top of um, not having a lot of 
economic resources or people to rely on to help you get out of that funk. I think it, the family has been hit. I think it's central to everything, dude. Like, and and it's one thing that I, I think it, it hurts a little, it hurts to me. Like when I think about the culture of rap, right? And I feel like one of the things that has helped me distinguish my life and change the trajectory of where I was going was disassociation with rap, that hip hop culture, because it's so anti-family, persuasive, I mean, pervasive, promiscuous. And that drives a lot of the youth and they make decisions before they even understand what those decisions are. Like, Mm family kids and now you have a kid being raised by a kid and the cycle is so hard to break and that's what a lot of i think the us as a black people need to be better and but it's hard because money talks right and it's just being pumped into our community because our community eats it up and it's starting to leak out into other communities and you're starting to see the degradation of society from the family aspect, but I think it, it hurts because rap, when it started off, it wasn't meant to be that. Rap is short for rapport, which is poem talking yeah. about a certain subject, expressing one's feelings, and it's went to this type of rap that the mainstream eats up because it makes more money. But yeah, I don't know. If, yeah, that's a rant yeah. for you, but. <laughs> No, I think there's so many things that come into that, right? And I think, you know, I I look at you and I hope you are just as much as an example and someone that to model ourselves after to me. And I hope the same way with those in the black community, right? That guys like you can step up and be great dads and great in the society and be successful and that that success breeds more success, right? I know that your positivity is contagious. I've felt that before, right? And when it comes to this mindset of, you know, you hear a lot of people right now saying, we've got to be anti-racist, right? But I think what you just said right there is, if we can spread that positivity and that optimism, no matter what color you are, like those values don't know color, the, the effect is that, you know, a rising tide raises all ships, right? Absolutely, and yeah. I think that's, I think we need more Alan Michael Bostons out there is what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, I've had my, uh, my fair share of uh, struggles and things that I've uh, fought, but I, I think through it all, I am a, a more positive, optimistic, things are getting better. Like, I, like, I, I don't know. I've, I've lived in, one of the things that a lot of people don't think about is, the South is actually way more culturally sensitive than everywhere else in the world. Like blacks and whites, I feel like in the South get along, or at least in my experience, get along a lot better than outside of the South. And I think because it's so, it's so it's a hot button. <laughs> and so like everyone walks on eggshells around it, but they do it in, in a casual way to where it's not like, you're actually walking on eggshells, but they are walking on eggshells around the topic. Whereas yeah. in the rest of the United States, it's not like that. I feel like like California, it's weird. Uh, yeah, it's weird. Yeah. I, I, maybe that's a good place to end this saying California is weird. I think we can all agree <laughs> with that, right? Yeah, I, I couldn't no. stay out there, yeah, man. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's what it's all about. I, I, I really like this conversation and I hope that people that have listened today maybe have been opened up to like, this isn't saying, oh, there isn't a problem or everything's okay. Like, of course not. But don't just buy everything the media says. Look at those around you. Understand there's complexity. We've come a long way as a society and that should be motivation and some inspiration for us to know that, hey, we can make progress. So let's go to work making a whole lot more. Absolutely. Yep. Awesome. Agreed. Well, I appreciate you coming on, my man. Thanks for reaching out. Anything you want to say in closing? <laughs> um, listen with open ears. Like, uh, I think I, I rambled. My thoughts oftentimes are, are pretty jumbled, but I think this podcast is a good stepping stone to given a platform for different people to speak and for us to be able to listen and yeah. pick out points where you can relate. Don't just say, Oh, I don't agree with that. Find the middle ground so that we can start moving together. And I think the millennial, the uh, millennial in the middle is being in that middle ground and understanding what you can take from either side. Yeah. We have a whole lot more in common than we do different. I love it. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, Al Michael, I end every episode the same way. Clowns to the left me, jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in, stuck the, in middle the middle with you. with you. Hey, that was pretty good. All right. Yeah. You brought a little more soul to that song there there today. I appreciate it. Appreciate it, buddy. All right. We'll see you soon. Thanks again. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle.